Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Saturday, July 1st, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden makes his sales pitch that Bidenomics is working. There's a lot of really good things as president has done and the data is showing it. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The Supreme Court lighting off political fireworks just days before Independence Day with a number of major decisions. I I think the president and his staff knew they were going to lose. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The presidency comes with many roles, commander-in-chief, sometimes after tragedy, consoler-in-chief, and often, as election season nears, seller-in-chief. The challenge for President Biden, most Americans aren't buying his sales pitch about Bidenomics. I didn't name it Bidenomics. I didn't realize the economist in the Wall Street Journal did. But I think it's a plan that I'm happy to call Bidenomics. And guess what? Bidenomics is working. The president made his case for his economic plan in a cornerstone speech in Chicago, conceding there is still plenty more to do, but insisting his policies, including massive investments in infrastructure and manufacturing, climate resiliency and drug pricing, are having measurable impacts for American households. I'm not here to declare victory on the economy. I'm here to say we have a plan that's turning things around incredibly quickly. We have more work to do. But a Fox News poll out this week found 60 percent of Americans disapprove of President Biden's handling of the economy. Just 38 percent approve. And 45 percent say they're falling behind on their personal financial situation. Forty three percent say they're holding steady. Just 11 percent say they're getting ahead. Of course, the economy is a measurement of numbers, numbers that can reveal a range and sometimes even contradictory results from inflation rates, job creation, unemployment, consumer confidence and business output. And that gets us back to the challenge for the president, turning his policies into reassurance around the kitchen table. Listen, I I think that the president has, with respect to the economy, the wind at his back. Robert Wolf was the chairman and CEO of UBS Americas, the founder of 32 advisors, and a former economic advisor for President Obama. I think if you look at the polls, you know, people aren't feeling it. And it's important that, you know, he as the president's the best messenger this country has, and he should, you know, make sure people understand that these legislative you know, victories that, you know, he achieved on a bipartisan basis is and will be making a difference for each and every American. And so, you know, I applaud that he Mm -hmm. gave that speech. You know, I've been on Fox News continually, uh, you know, saying, I don't think we're going into a recession. Certainly, I'm concerned about, you know, long tail inflation. 
But there's a lot of really good things this president has done, and the data is showing it. You know, and that to me seems to be what the challenge is, maybe from uh, th- that disconnect, right, between sort of the- these economic indicators, as you point out, and, and where the public sentiment seems to be, because even the president has sort of conceded some of these are going to take time to, to get in, right? The infrastructure bill, talking about a lot of money, but getting roads and bridges going can take some time. The chips manufacturing, again, can take some time. Some of the benefits as it relates to prescription drug prices can all take some time, right? So is that sort of part of the challenge here, that, that the public polling may be a bit of a lagging indicator when you look at some of the other you know, numbers that that the administration and economists look at. I I think, Jared, that is well said. And I think that's part of the issue. I think on the flip side, you have some good things that are happening each and every day. The labor market continues to be buoyant. The unemployment rate continues to be low. The jobs market is strong. Wages have gone up. In sectors that were hit, harder by COVID, wages have gone up more than inflation, like hospitality and leisure and parts of the service sector. Manufacturing has um, added 800,000 new jobs. With respect to, you know, infrastructure, I don't want to get into the, you know, shovel ready. We've been down that path before. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) But there are 35,000 projects committed and funded, and some have begun. With respect to manufacturing, there is over $450 billion committed and ready to go, not just on manufacturing and industrial and chips, but on on EV plants and on on battery buildups. So I, I think it's a combination of this is what's happening today, you know, GDP, did better than expected today. Personal consumption was better. Retail sales were better. So the economy is stronger than where we were a year ago. With all that being said, inflation impacts everyone each and every day. And so even though we've come down by over 50% versus the high, it's still more than this president and the everyday hardworking American wants it to be. So you have to balance that part of, um, you know, what's good and, and, you know, what's still, you know, an impact in a post-COVID world while we have heightened geopolitical risk. And, you know, in some ways, you know, we're, he's going to have to balance that each and every day. Where should we be measuring, though, from the administration talks a lot about jobs created since the pandemic or since, uh, you know, inflation coming down since the end of the pandemic. But is is that the fair judgment? Because inflation is certainly higher today than it was when President Biden took office. If you go back further, right, the, the job creation numbers are certainly a lot better than they were during the peak of covid, but but not if you go back you know, a few months before, where should we be measuring sort of the success versus kind of just like riding the ship? Does that make sense? Listen, I I think you can always pick and choose the point of time that best fits your narrative. (laughs) You know, I remember when President Obama and I was advising him his first month as president, I think he lost 800,000 jobs. 
he was not allowed to take that month away because that was a fallout from the Bush administration and the recession, right? It counted. You start when you become president and you end when you leave the presidency. And, you know, listen, we don't know what legislative policies or actions President Trump would have taken if he was still president. All we can tell you is what actions President Biden took with respect to COVID and testing and emergencies. And we can debate that all day. But no matter how you slice it, while he's been president, we have gained 13 million jobs. That's a fact. And no one's going to be able to take it away from him while he's a president. Just like if in the next two years, we lose jobs or recession comes, you know, he's going to get hit with that, even though I don't think that will happen. No different than inflation was going to happen in the reopening of COVID. No matter what, you had the entire world reopen with difficult supply chains moving from durable goods inflation to the service sector inflation, which is five times larger from an economic perspective. We were going to have inflation. He owns that. Yes, I think we can blame it on post-COVID and we can blame it on, you know, Putin starting a war with Ukraine. But either way, as president, he's the president and he owns the good and the bad. So I give him the good and I take away the bad. Actually, I give him the bad, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask about inflation, right? It is now, I think, right at about 4%, um, yeah. about twice as high as the Federal Reserve says it should be. In your view, what is the timeline, if that is the fall to that, yeah. I guess, normal range of about 2%? So, uh, you know, Jared, that's a good question. I have been critical on the Fed over the past few years. This is, you know, you can look at all my interviews. I'm pretty much an open book. I was not supportive of when they did additional quantitative easing, QE3 and 4. Mm -hmm. I absolutely did not think inflation was transitory. And I've been all along saying, I think we're not in a recession, but I do think we're going to have long tail inflation. My view, I think the Fed's been doing a really good job over the past year, and I support their rate hikes. I think where I would probably have a disagreement with them is their benchmark view of inflation to two, two and a half in a post-COVID world. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that should hold true anymore. If if you and I were chatting and we said, hey, inflation's at three, three and a half percent, but wages were five, five and a half percent, so purchasing power was better, you and I would say, fine, that's great. So to get well, to- but that's not, I mean, that, that's not the situation right now. I mean, wages not have not kept up with inflation. No. So I, I guess what no, you're that, saying is the measurement shouldn't be just the inflation number. We should be comparing inflation with wages. Yes. But I mean, I would, you know, one, income's gone up higher than inflation and personal mm -hmm. income's up like eight and a half percent, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, we could mix and match a lot of different data. <laughs> Let's just agree that inflation's too high and wages we need to have continue to go up. So we're going to agree that those are two of the most important bookends. My point is a little different. You asked a question on the Fed. I'm not sure when we'll reach that target to two and a half. I, I don't even know if it will be inside 2024. Like I said, I think we will see longer tail inflation if the range is two, two and a half. Because we've moved from durable goods inflation during COVID, people buying Pelotons and computers and you know furniture 
to service sector inflation. And with service sector inflation, which is five times greater than durable goods inflation, I think it's going to rear its ugly head for a longer tail. What more can the president do? Um, I mean, obviously, he has to work with Congress in some respects and in some issues he doesn't. Um, we've seen, you know, some of the moves as it relates to Medicare, uh, some of the moves as it relates to, as the president called it in his speech this week, uh, targeted investments, uh, yeah. the spending. Is there much more in the toolbox here? I, I think the most important thing is execute. Execute the infrastructure plan. Execute the Chips and Manufacturing Act. Execute making sure that prescription drugs are going down. Execute things like SNAP and, and things with respect to food insecurity. You know, I, I think we just got to execute all the stimulus and the legislative wins we've put together over the last 18 months and let them go to work. And, you know, it's easy to pass legislation. It's not easy to execute that legislation. So I think, you know, we're kind of the show me state, right? We got to, we have to show that we can spend that money wisely and do it in a way where we will increase GDP growth, increase, you know, good paying jobs and increase wages. Only, you know, only time will tell. I don't think there's a lot he can do from an executive power basis. As we look at Congress, then the next sort of big issue we expect them to tackle by from a bipartisan perspective certainly is continuation of government funding, the appropriations process. We don't know how that's going to look. Certainly, we got maybe a preview of it in this debt limit fight that they had uh, several weeks ago. But if there were in October, say, a short term, medium term or long term government shutdown, what would that mean for economic growth? I mean, it doesn't really impact. I mean, a government shutdown is not a large part of GDP for a short-term shutdown. It's certainly not like the debt ceiling fiasco mm -hmm. we would have had. But it's not good. It's not right. Hardworking people won't get paid. You're going to have issues with veterans affairs and, you know, those people that, that need government support and government funding. It's not a good thing, and there's no reason we should do it. What role does government spending, I guess, the other side of the coin, impact inflation? You hear from Republicans, certainly, that the reason inflation hit to 9% continues to be persistent is because of things like the Inflation Reduction Act, the amount of money that was spent during the COVID era as well. Is there a, a correlation, a connection between government funding, government spending, and inflation? I mean... Yes, there is normally a correlation and more spending brings on inflation. But one, we have not really seen that pre-COVID. We spent more than you can imagine pre-COVID. We even spent more during COVID and post-COVID and inflation didn't rear its ugly head. So it's because we had really the, the inflation part was because of the reopening of the world, you know, simultaneously happening with incredible geopolitical risk with the Russia-Ukraine war. So in my opinion, that those are the two real reasons. Would we have maybe have seen it crept up a, a tad? Yes. It's no different than why you're seeing it come down quickly, right? Um, because COVID's a little more in the rearview mirror. The war is not in the beginning, and we've changed the supply chains on energy. So we're seeing it, you know, down dramatically. With respect to spending, I mean, listen, no one spent more than President Trump. All right. I mean, he's 25 percent of all debt. So 
this is not a Republican or Democratic issue. We like to spend. And, you know, unfortunately, if we're going to take the social safety net off the table, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and we're going to continue with our military spending, then you're talking about uh, discretionary non-military, which is 15% of all spending. There's just not an all else there to cut. It's just, I mean, you'd have to cut 85% in the next 10 years to move the needle. That's just not happening. So honestly, we need to grow out of it. We need to get revenues up. Because I would say to you, Jared, if I told you debt was at 30 trillion, but our GDP was at 50 trillion, you wouldn't care that debt was at 30 trillion, right? It should be, it should be debt to GDP, right? That's the important thing. And so we have to grow. And then as you grow, hopefully you weed down debt. And then deficits become surpluses. I just gave you the most idealistic, idealistic perspective that we've heard in a long time. But I'm giving you just more economics. Uh, listen, if it were that simple, right? So. Yeah, exactly. All right, Robert Wolf, appreciate the time. Uh, really good context and, and a good explanation here about the uh, the political and economic realities that the administration's facing now as they uh, try and move forward here on on uh, sort of explaining to the American people what they are calling Bidenomics. Appreciate the time, sir. Great. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. For the second year in a row, the Supreme Court made a major ruling overturning a long-standing legal precedent. Last year it was Roe v. Wade. This year, it's affirmative action, ruling that universities cannot use race as a factor in college admissions as a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. President Biden in a press conference Thursday. I believe our colleges are stronger when they're racially diverse. Our nation is stronger because we use what we, because we are tapping into the full range of talent in this nation. Another ruling from the court Friday, 6-3 in favor of a Christian web designer who refused to design same-sex wedding websites. Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissenting from the majority, along with Justices Elena Kagan and Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And another blow to the administration's agenda after a majority vote to strike down President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan for millions of borrowers, the president reacted to the decision. I know there are millions of Americans, millions of Americans in this country who feel disappointed and uh, discouraged or even a little bit angry about the court's decision today on student debt. And I must admit I do too. With many Democrats now floating ideas such as expanding the court or adding term limits, conservatives are applauding the latest SCOTUS rulings. They have moved away historically from straight quotas to quotas by a different name. Roger Severino served in the Health and Human Services offices for civil rights under President Donald Trump and explains why he thinks the Supreme Court got it right this time. They moved on to a diversity rationale, which Grutter allowed some. That was the previous Supreme Court decision about 20 years ago. And they've really pushed hard to say from the left that merely having different people of different skin color enhances the educational environment. 
The Supreme Court said they never proved that in this case. And particularly Justice Thomas in, in his concurrence said they really provided no evidence that actually says that having different colors of people somehow enhances the educational experience. Instead, what could enhance educational experience are actual individual life experiences, which the Supreme Court says was not being taken into account. Instead, they use a blunt, check-the-box, race determinant. And in fact, about 45% of African-Americans were accepted into Harvard where race was determinative. And for Asian-Americans, they were capped at about 20% as a max. It was a hard ceiling that they could not break through, regardless of their test scores, regardless of their GPA, because they, Harvard said, they had enough Asians. So that that is was patently offensive to Asians and to anybody who believes in equal justice under the law. And this case was a great vindication for the rule of law, for the Constitution, and the principle that Dr. Martin Luther King stood for, that we should not be judged by the color of our skin, but the content of our character. Now, do you believe that they brought a significantly strong argument to this that 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 really kind of swayed the justices one way here? Or do you think that the 6-3 majority conservative uh, court played into that? The evidence was overwhelming that race was being explicitly taken into account. And even if you look at the Grutter decision that preceded this one, Harvard failed in every measure. They were not pointing to it being time limited in any way. There was no way they could say that their vague diversity rationale could ever be fulfilled. Because under the Constitution, the only time race is allowed to be taken into consideration is to remedy some past direct harm. And then there must be a time limit. There was no time limit. They wanted this to perpetuate forever. And they had these goals where they were able to exclude Asians using personality test scores and saying things like, we found that Asians were just not as kind as other races. And of course, that's incredibly offensive. And once the litigation came forward and they had to give up the goods and explain that, yes, they were tracking racial numbers with, with a microscope and fine tuning at every step, then they started to magically allow more Asian Americans in. After about 20 years of this hard cap, once the litigation started, they, they uh, started allowing some more Asians in because they knew the game was up. Disappointingly, though, the president himself said, we're going to help you find ways around the Constitution. And that that is rather shocking, given that the president is in charge through the Department of Justice to enforce the very civil rights law that was found at issue to have been violated here, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which... I actually enforced when I was at DOJ civil rights, but the president has abandoned it. What legally can the president do though? He He's going to not enforce the law that he's charged with enforcing. It's under the civil rights act that was designed to end racial discrimination. He's announced that he's not gonna be enforcing it when it comes to racial preferences that Harvard and other schools put into place. And mind you, that law includes things like disparate impact, which folks on the left love that legal theory, but the president is not going to enforce it. In fact, he's going to do the opposite. He's encouraging the universities to try to find some way around it. I don't know if you saw the announcement from Harvard. They sent out an announcement to all alums that I received that showed that they want people to find some way, any way, to signal what their race is in their application. And then Harvard is with a wink and a nod, saying it's going to take it into account. If the Supreme Court said, look, we're going to smoke that out if you attempt to do that, if you attempt to use the application and essay process 
to use blunt categories as opposed to taking people as individuals. So individual stories about overcoming discrimination are perfectly valid, but that applies to white people, Asians, blacks, and all races. It can't be just the check the box racial preferences. Those days are dead and over. Now, the, the, the check the boxes aren't going to be there, but one thing that a lot of people are pointing out is that there's still going to be uh, the personal statement section. There's still going to be an essay question where university, or people can put their race and universities can look at that. And some kind of think that this might be a loophole here where the universities are still going to be aware of somebody's race, their culture, their background uh, when they write these essays because you know, some of the toughest schools to get into in the country require essays usually. And I think you know, kind of mm-hmm. two parts of this question you know, what's to stop the universities from still using their current admissions process? Uh, and also, how would the government be able to enforce that? It does prevent a big opening for the left to try to drive a wedge in. And they've already announced they're going to do it. So Erwin Chemerinsky, there's a YouTube of him explaining how when they're hiring in a state where you cannot take race into account for professors, they were being quiet about it, a conspiracy of silence, so to speak, where as long as you don't put it in writing, we all know what we can do. That has to be smoked out. And we we faced this before. Remember, during the civil rights era, there was hidden discrimination all the time. I enforced our fair housing laws, and we would send testers with wires to go in and white testers and black testers to see if they were treated any differently when seeking the same apartment. And you'd be shocked with what you could discover when you do that sort of thing. So it's going to take litigation to make sure that we smoke out the discrimination that we know these elite institutions want to continue to perpetuate. And they're going to do it with things like essays when they take things that aren't relevant to the actual success in the academic environment. And they're doing other things like getting rid of the SAT and the LSAT saying that we're not going to even consider those in some cases, or they're optional. Why? Because Asian Americans tend to do quite well on standard standardized tests. People should be troubled by this. And affirmative action in, in, and racial preferences are unpopular. The majority of Americans, including the majority of minorities, are against them. And California, one of the most liberal states, has time and again rejected it when that question has been presented to the people. And now the Supreme Court said... Those people have been right all along. The Constitution actually prohibits it because we are a nation of equal protection, and this is a colorblind Constitution. Your individual stories matter, but check-the-box race cannot be taken into account. Right. And, and, you know, we had a Fox News poll out about this uh, where affirmative action, you know, 51 percent in favor, opposed 42 when it comes to programs and college admissions. Uh, When you go down party lines, you have Democrats, 78 percent in favor, uh, Republicans, only 25 percent in favor. And that kind of leads into where where do you think this plays politically uh, down the road? And then we can kind of get into some of the other issues and how they play politically, too. We've seen that the political left has mobilized on questions of race. And because of that fact, race relations are worse than I was a kid. It's sad to see what has happened with the hyperpolarization, and especially with CRT and DEI, critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion. They see racism everywhere, that it is endemic, that it is systemic, and it is something that is practically incurable. And you always are going to have to have a permanent government thumb on the scales to do racial balancing. That's not the America I grew up in. Uh, I, that doesn't explain my successes as you know, growing up poor and Hispanic 
And I eventually stopped checking the boxes after going through affirmative action programs because of the rank injustice of it. And as well as the mismatch, I went through the affirmative action programs and I saw the African-Americans and Hispanics that were in there were being set up for failure. They were being put in places where they did not have the proper background or training or experience and were set up for failure. And that crushes a person's willingness to fight on and it creates uh, racial animosity. It creates an excuse to say, you know what it was? It's because of institutional racism that we don't see. That's the reason. And that that is not the solution. So we have to move beyond that. But the left is holding on as hard as it can to CRT and putting it in the schools. And just, it just has to stop. And part of this decision really casts doubt on all the DEI programs in the universities today, all the racial set-aside programs. And and we're going to see that those are going to be challenged, too, because this, this decision opens up that door. Now, when we talk about something else that, that angered a lot of folks in the Democrat side of the aisle, certainly uh, President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan was struck down by the Supreme Court also. Uh, kind of, This was more of a, a major legal question about the uh, power of the president and also the power of Congress and who should be passing laws and who should it be uh, initiating student loan forgiveness. Certainly, it seemed like the court in this case uh, did not buy uh, President Biden's lawyer's argument that the HEROES Act gives the president the legal authority to forgive student loans. Do you think that the HEROES argument was a weak argument to begin with uh, and that this was always something that Congress had to do? I, I think the president and his staff knew they were going to lose. Just like they said earlier, we don't believe the president can order a vaccine mandate. He said it himself, and then he ordered a vaccine mandate and then got slapped down by the Supreme Court. Same thing here. Uh, you can't, as Obama say, rule with a pen and a phone when the law doesn't allow you to. But the president tried to do this to please part of his political base with a student loan giveaway. So many people have worked for decades to pay off their student loans and they don't get a, bail, a bailout. Uh, it, 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 people who have high school degrees that are that are working in the trades, they don't get a bailout because they chose not to take on the massive debt that many students did. So this was a political game that the president played. I think most people knew he was going to lose. I think even his own staff probably knew he was going to lose. And the Supreme Court made that abundantly clear that you can't take laws that allow you to modify a loan program to reinterpret that to say we're going to forgive, quote unquote, which is actually amnesty and and bailout, over $430 billion of student loans for 40 million potential students. That's Congress's decision to do to make those sorts of calls, not a president. We don't live under a monarchy. We live under a representative democracy. And, the course right. and that, that was principle. something that uh, Speaker Pelosi said, uh, I believe, a couple years back, where she said that that student loan forgiveness needs to be something that Congress does and that the president doesn't have that authority. And certainly Republicans were using those words quite extensively as this case was being uh, debated and decided. So if this were to be an act of Congress, would the administration have had a lot stronger legal standing ground here? Oh, absolutely. And that's the way things should should work. Right. We, we give up too much power to executive agencies in particular when the power really belongs to Congress. So think back to the Little Sisters of the Poor case under Obamacare. Nowhere in Obamacare did it say you must force nuns to buy contraceptive coverage for fellow nuns. Yet somehow through the agency processes, they imposed that with a force and effect of law. And it took the Supreme Court and later the Trump administration. We got rid of those regulations because it wasn't in the law. 
and of course violated religious freedom. But we see this time and again that now, especially with this president, abusing the power when Congress does not grant it. They they say from the left something must be done, and the president says, "Well, I'm going to go do it," you know, and and he does, and he gets slapped on by the Supreme Court because it's such an overreach. And, and kind of moving forward, uh, there's another case here. We, you know, uh, the 303 Creative LLC uh, case out of Colorado. Uh, so this case was kind of a hypothetical in many ways because this this business owner never really had uh, a case where she, you know, had to turn somebody down because it was a same-sex marriage but in many ways this might set a new precedent right when it, when we talk about religious liberty and and also the the right of lgbtq people to be served well it, it's not about the uh, that framing is incorrect okay. the, they never said that they wouldn't serve people based on their identity right they accepted all comers it was the particular message they and just like the baker's case in masterpiece cake shop they would bake any of the cake and provide all the, the services so long as they're not required to affirm a message that contradicts the truth of marriage being the union of one man and one woman, right? They were being called to affirm and and uh, that message. And the, the Supreme Court in this in this decision, they cited a very famous cat case, West Virginia versus Barnett. In the height of World War II, school kids were being required to pledge allegiance to the flag and some Jehovah's Witnesses refused. and they uh, received significant punishment. The Supreme Court stood up and said, in the Constitution, even if it's unpopular, uh, you cannot force somebody to pledge allegiance to the flag. The Supreme Court in this case essentially extended that principle to say, you're not required to pledge allegiance to the pride flag. And and that's one of those things at stake where the free speech works for everybody. Whether you agree with the issue or you disagree with the issue, you can't force people with their own words, with their own creative energies, with their own lips, to violate their conscience with a message that they disagree with. And all sides, whether you're on the pro-LGBT side, on, on you know, pro-truth of marriage side, that those principles hold either way. Uh, and that's what the Supreme Court ruled on. Now, forgive me if this question is kind of irrelevant to, to this case in particular or, or any case moving forward, but, you know, we did just have the Respect for Marriage Act signed into law. Uh, how do you think that will play into similar cases moving forward, mm -hmm. considering there are religious liberty protections that are supposed to be instituted with that law? Does that play at all here? It, it does in this way. So under the RFMA, they codified in many ways Obergefell to put its final stamp of of state approval on same-sex marriage in against all the states that still on the books they have protections for uh, man-woman marriage that are not in effect they cannot be in effect because of over Bugafell. so it was in very much a gratuitous swipe at people of faith right at who who continue to hold that marriage is one man and one woman this came up in this case in the sense that people of faith wanted to continue to operate in the public square with those beliefs that have been respected for millennia. And the state of Colorado was going to prevent them from doing that. Either that or they'd had to mouth words that 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 uh, they could not good conscience say. The outstanding issues of things like tax-exempt status of religious organizations that don't affirm same-sex marriage is still an open question. And that's why we needed things like Senator Lee's First Amendment Defense Act. We need the First Amendment Defense Act to build on cases like this, which are about the First Amendment, because there's still an open question whether or not 
the next step in response, the state's going to move for tax exempt status, the federal government against tax exempt status of these organizations, licensing of adoption agencies we've already seen that don't affirm same-sex unions. Again, it's not about status. It's about particular conduct. And that fight is going to continue. And again, we're going to see the president lead the charge in massive resistance to the Supreme Court decisions because he's been relentless. The left has been relentless on these culture war issues. And, uh, you know, the issues are are still <laughs> engaged. And I don't see this tamping down anytime soon, except this. The Supreme Court has repeatedly stood for uh religious freedom and free speech when it comes to these issues. And that's been a, a, a very good highlight as a last defense, but it shouldn't be yeah, last. In this case, though, was there something wrong in particular, or unconstitutional in particular with that Colorado anti-discrimination law that, that played a factor? Oh, absolutely. So this is, there's been four cases now where the LGBT left has been tried to either hijack things like parades or the Boy Scouts and and have people affirm the LGBT message when it contradicts their own. So you had Hurley, which was the parade one. You had Boy Scouts versus Dale, which dealt with the Boy Scouts. You had Masterpiece Cake Shop about custom wedding cakes. And now you have the fourth one, which deals with custom wedding uh, websites. So in each of those cases, that the state has overreached on an anti-discrimination rationale to try to go into these businesses, these organizations, uh, and and to say your message is disfavored, we don't like it. We don't like your message with respect to same-sex marriage and LGBT issues. You have to, with your own words, with your own talent, with your own artistry, affirm the message that we prefer, which is a pro-LGBT one. The First Amendment prohibits that, both on religious freedom grounds, but all these four were, were free speech grounds. And I guess last question here, you know, uh... There are going to be people who are applauding the decisions that were made this week. It certainly was an historic week, uh, but there are also those who are going to be pretty frustrated with what happened this week. You know, if if anyone's angry about a certain decision that happened this week, should they be directing their anger towards the justices, or is there somebody else that they should be blaming when it comes to this? First, read the opinions. Read the majority opinions, read the dissents, and you'll see the arguments for yourself. So don't just trust the corporate media's word on it. Certainly don't trust the, the, you know, the president and what he's been saying. Uh, so read it and you'll be able to see. When you support the Constitution, it is better for everybody. It is better for all Americans. In, in the racial discrimination case, Asian Americans are now going to be allowed to seat at the table as well as whites. Everybody gets a fair shot. On the free speech case, everybody has their free speech protected. You can't force LGBT people to violate their beliefs on questions of marriage. And this, the government cannot do it the other way. Um, that's what it means to, to have a pluralistic society under the constitution where we're all treated as individuals and, and equally, and that's a win for everybody. Roger Severino, a very historic week with the Supreme court. We thank you for breaking it down with us. You're very much welcome. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. How is the war in Ukraine shaping the Republican primary? And a look at the 4th of July celebration from the nation's capital. For now, I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.